Welcome to show 68 of the C-Suite podcast, the second of a series of uh, special episodes that we're recording here at the Can Lion International Festival of Creativity. I'm Russell Goldsmith and this is the uh, third year that we've uh, recorded the show here. And once again, we're at the International Communications Consultancy Organization's ICO House of PR, uh, which is situated in one of the cabanas on the beachfront outside the main festival hall. Uh, in this episode, we're focusing on some of the marketing trends and issues being discussed at Can, And we're kicking off with uh, what should be an interesting chat about how brands can succeed on social media uh, by learning from how the entertainment companies are doing it. And so joining me now to tell us exactly that are Steve Ackerman, Managing Director of Content Company Something Else, Giuseppe De Cristofano, who is Director of Digital for the Brit Awards, and Janine Smith, Head of Digital at the uh, UK's biggest commercial broadcaster, ITV. So thanks to all three of you for joining the uh, show. Uh, Steve, let's come to you first, um, as you're moderating the session that you're going to be uh, talking about on exactly this topic uh, later. Um, my thoughts were, it's all well and good saying brands need to think and behave like entertainment you know, brands and, and, and broadcasters for their social media success. But most brands won't necessarily have the assets that your esteemed panel colleagues here you know, have got. So doesn't that immediately create a barrier for them in, in achieving the success in, in the way that you're talking about? I don't think it's really about the assets. It's about the mindset. So when you think of what entertainment companies do, they're always thinking about an audience. You know, who, who are we trying to reach, and, and, and obviously how can we entertain them? And I think when you're looking in the content space, that's exactly the same challenge for for brands. So it's really changing the mindset from one of thinking about people as consumers, what can I sell them, to thinking about them as an audience, and therefore how can I engage with them? And when you think about content, that's obviously what's at the heart of it. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm echoing what Steve's saying there. I mean, it's obviously. That's one of our first things that we do is look at where where is our audience, what platform are they on, how are they consuming similar types of content, and then we work in with something else about creating that content specifically and tailoring it for that platform. So, for instance, our Snapchat content will be completely different to our Instagram content, although it's you're still showing a live story, for instance, on both platforms, but they're completely different types of. Uh, audiences on those platforms sure. and, and, it, and it's probably I mean it's worth saying as well that um, well both for the Brits and ITV even though the content has ha, is coming from an editorial place it's it's very much there to achieve a marketing hmm. objective as well and obviously especially in the Brits scenario I mean that's why the Brits exists right to sell the, British music so the, the whole show exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well we'll come on to both the, of, of your uh, um, sort of content platforms in a second. Janine, you, you wanted to just add something there. Yeah, I mean, again, I share those um, sentiments about um, knowing the audience, but also it's about making an emotional connection with them. I mean, I work in entertainment, but it's the same whether you work in sport, whether you work in daytime, whether you work in factual. It's about that connection that you make, whether it's something that makes people laugh, something that makes people cry. It's it's about knowing them and having that connection. Well, well let's stick... Let's stick with you, Janine, because you look after the, the digital aspect of some of the biggest shows on TV. Yeah. Um, so just a few examples. You've got um, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, yeah. uh, Ant and Dex Saturday Night Takeaway, and of course Love Island, which, yeah. and I've got to admit, I'm a fan of, of <laughs> all three. Um, but I mean, Love, Love Island, obviously, such a huge success. And, yeah. and what I thought, maybe we could just focus on that, obviously, given that's being broadcast at the moment. Can you share exactly how much resource goes into keeping that conversation flowing across all those digital channels? Yeah, I mean, this year... Love Island is bigger than it's ever been before and to that point I've put more resource in on the digital side than ever before so we've got new things this year like we have a daily podcast going out every mornings which we record every night after the show um, using some of the Love Island talent from previous years um, we've got 12 I think commercial partners all producing different 
aspects of content by the team either in Mallorca or in London. And then we have our editorial digital team in Mallorca creating all the content that you see across social, the website and the app. That's it. I want to pick up actually on, on given we are a podcast ourselves. Is mm-hmm. that the first time that you've introduced podcasting to the, to the other um, yeah, uh, yeah. it's the first entertainment podcast we've done. We've done a couple in sport around the Rugby World Cup, and there's a World Cup football one going out at the moment. But yeah, it's the very first entertainment podcast, um, and that's been brought as a piece of branded content sponsored by Kellogg's because it's a breakfast show, and that was a really nice fit for them. Um, and yeah, it's the first time we've tried we've tried podcasting, and I think we're about number one to eight in the iTunes chart at the moment, so I think it's working pretty well. I know, my daughter listens to it <laughs> regularly, so um, yeah, there you go. Uh, Giuseppe, um, the Brits obviously slightly different prospect, you know, because you're only on TV for the one night exactly, with yeah. the awards. <laughs> How do you keep that engagement going throughout the year then? How does that all work? Well, it's, it's a slightly different challenge for us, as you say. Um, I think it's still key for us to maximise that night uh, and have as much blanket coverage as we can get across our traditional partners and uh, our digital platforms and I think we've we've achieved that in the last uh, two or three campaigns Um, but uh, we have a build up from around December is when we usually start the campaign for that award show, that that incoming award show Um, so we build from there January we announce our nominations and that's again sort of a bigger bigger moment for us especially on social where we're getting really active then we've got uh, once we obviously know the nominees and we've got a bit of access to talent uh, we can then uh, sort of hone in some of our creative concepts Um, but for us all year round um, we're talking a bit broader about British music in general and that's what the Brits is there to do is to promote British artists globally Um, and the digital platforms give us that reach and scale that we wouldn't have had 10 years ago, 15 years ago, um, it was very much a UK focused event and we've now with our live streaming on YouTube for the past five years uh, outside of the UK, um, we've grown an audience of 1.5 million uh, outside of the UK of viewers actually tuning in at that time um, to watch the broadcast and we can tell from a lot of our analytics that we've got fans from all over the world because obviously Ed Sheeran and One Direction and uh, you know, Dua Lipa, a massive global artists um, and the Brits is there to try and leverage and bring through some of the newer artists yeah. off the back of that. Steve on, on um, you know both these kind of opportunities where it's live and it's just 24 hours does it does it take over the life of an agency? It, I, I mean yes I suppose uh, I mean certainly for the people working on it in different ways um, I mean it's quite interesting because um, certainly the way we, we work with ITV and the way Janine likes to work is is one where where we're sort of embedded with with ITV so we'll 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 have members of the team who will disappear off for you know weeks at a time um, because they're either on location or or, or or over at ITV with the Brits it's a, it's a slightly different thing so as Giuseppe said um, even though it's one night it is building up for many many months so the team over months is getting bigger and bigger and then suddenly for the actual week of the event it transforms into something very different which is really a live social media newsroom so I mean we had down at the Brits this year, we had 150 people working on content because obviously the, 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 the aim is to turn around content as quickly as possible, but obviously of a really high quality to make sure the Brits are in the middle of the conversation. You know, lots of people are creating content around the Brits. Yeah. The point is we want the Brits to actually be at the heart of that conversation. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the topics listed on, on the promo to your talk here at Cannes um, 
was talking about why brands who use content creators who are fans of the brand will always win. I just thought maybe just to finish off this in interview, if you can give us your thoughts on, on that and perhaps, I don't know if you can share a couple of examples, whether working with these guys or, or others that you've seen out there. Steve, let's, let's start with you on that. Well, one. maybe I might, I'm, I might defer a, a, over to these guys because I know, I'm, I mean, obviously in the case of the Brits, we had a big sort of influencer squad really, didn't we? And, and, yeah. and also, I mean, obviously, a lot of the content we're creating is to is to mobilise the fans. Is, yeah. is to you know I suppose at the heart is taking those fans and um, using them to be evangelists for the for the, for the sure. brand. You're obviously trying to reach their communities, and then we're also doing it through obviously the influencer approach. Yeah, as well. I, I mean for for Brits in particular, it was a key pillar of our strategy this year uh, was to um, bring in different influencers from different verticals that weren't just music because we're obviously we cover that already with the talent we've got. Um, so we were bringing in uh, Instagrammers who were, you know, food verticals or, or, or comedy and so on. Um, and that worked really well for us, bringing in a slightly different audience into the Brits who maybe weren't, weren't touching the Brits as often as we, we had hoped. And we were able to bring them in, bring them in for the journey. And that, that worked across from, from probably January all the way through to, to the show in February. It worked really well for us this year. And Janine, how about yourself? I guess one of the best examples of how we do this is around Ant and Dec's Saturday Night Takeaway. Mm -hmm. um, I guess most people will know what that show is. It's um, a, a show that is key to kind of Saturday night portfolio for ITV. It's got our biggest um, stars in that. And um, they use the audience in a quite a unique way as part of the TV version of that show. And what we wanted to do was use influencers to sort of open up that audience on the digital platform. So we have a strand in the in the main TV show, which is Ant versus Deck, and they do challenges against each other. The way we adapted that for digital is we had Ant and Deck versus YouTubers. So for the last three years, we've used different YouTubers to do challenges against Ant and Deck. We've had them down on a day of shooting and created a portfolio of content out of that that both the influencers use on their platforms and we use on the Ant and Deck platforms just to kind of reach a whole different sort of audience in a, in a new way. And on top of that, we've had influencers like you know, Aaron Craskill came down this year. He's got something like 4 million followers. Um, he came and did a day in the studio with us and the Something Else team um, backstage on the night on the live show. And, you know, again, that's reaching out to a whole different set of people who are maybe not sitting down with their mum and dad and watching that show from 7 till 8.30 on a Saturday. Saturday night. I, th I think the, um, the the other interesting thing that that happens with both of um, both of the both ITV and the Brits, in terms of uh, uh, sort of tapping into the audience and mobilising evangelists, is creating content that sits in the main the main show, but which can be utilised online. So, for instance, with Ant and Deck, we managed to get into the TV show a, a moment when they take a selfie with everyone who's been on the show. Now, obviously, if you're a fan of the show, you're going to share that, and that means we're starting to reach lots of people who who aren't tuning into the show in a similar way for quite a number of years now we've had a social vote running mm. uh, you know so one of the awards is 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 won by people voting uh, through social media and obviously that is the strongest possible way to 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 mobilize fans and get them drawing other people into the content of the of the Brits so I think it's it's thinking about you know how really you can have that really really deep conversation with the people who care most about your product Excellent. Well, listen, I'm sure we could be talking for ages on this, but you've got a, uh, a session to prep for, so we'll leave it there. But um, for now, Janine, Steve and Giuseppe, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks Thank a lot. You. Thank you. It's harder than ever to keep track of everything being said in news and social media. It's even more difficult to gain actionable insights that will improve your reputation and results. Karma provides global media intelligence services to help you communicate more effectively. 
from automated media monitoring to expertly crafted PR measurement reports, Karma delivers what matters. For more information or to schedule a free consultation, please visit karma.com. That's C-A-R-M-A dot com. Welcome back to the C-Suite Podcast with me, Russell Goldsmith. And uh, next to join us for a chat is Melissa Wagner-Zorkin, CEO of We Communications. Uh, now, Melissa is taking part in a panel discussion tomorrow uh, talking about the role of purpose in business. Um, but we managed to get to her first. Uh, so I'm going to quiz her a little bit on her thoughts on that topic, as well as ask her about uh, We's recent Brands in Motion study too. Um, so thanks very much for joining the show, Melissa. Thank you for having me. It's, I'm excited. It's an absolute pleasure. Good. Well, um, Let's talk about uh, business purpose, uh, first of all. I know it's a, a real passion of yours. Where does having a, a purpose within business fit with you personally, um, but also within your agency and uh, the advice that you provide your clients? So three parts to that one. Three parts, and I'm actually going to start someplace else really quickly and oh, okay. say <laughs> it is great to be at Can because the topic of purpose is no longer something that's a distant one. It's in everybody's conversations, and as you can see, all the awards, the best work actually involves some sort of purpose uh, and some sort of social good. Uh, so I am so delighted to be here and to see all that work and to see so many people really working together to make the world a better place. So for about me, yes, I did start uh, the Wagner Group at the time um, with a thought in mind about what are we really doing. I think a lot of people start companies and they're not quite clear what they're going to do. I was very clear that we would be using communications in a different way to hopefully tell stories that would move people to action. Uh, sort of less talk, more doing, if you will. And so my dad, a spirited man and, and a wonderful man, um, would always pressure me to uh, sit back and reflect on why, 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 why was I, you know, doing something. Yeah. Um, and so when I started the firm, I said I'm doing it because I really want to use communications for good. And so I started very purpose-driven. And my partner, Pam Edstrom, I brought her um, along very quickly. Uh, she felt the same way. And so I think really uh, independence at our heart, which which is something that you know about us, allows us to stay purpose-driven, allows us to make decisions that could be counterintuitive to a business person. So it's very important for us to maintain that independence so we can make those kinds of choices. And more importantly, though, if you think about the size of our company, you know, we can be very good in the world. We can, um, you know, take on causes. We can stand up for things that are important to us. But our scalability comes when we unite our clients around those things. Our scalability comes when we teach our clients and work with our clients to also be purpose-driven, and that's where the scalability comes from. So that, to the second or third part of your question, is really how we counsel our clients. Just picking up on something you just said there about you know that independence, but also you know what you're trying to achieve and the clients that you work with. Has that impacted on some of the decisions? I mean, have you had a brief ever before, I don't know if you can answer this or not, where you've gone, actually, we don't want to work with you because that doesn't fit with what your, your belief is? I love the question you're asking about what are the consequences that we ourselves have been willing to stomach along yeah. the way, uh, keeping our purpose front and center. We have uh, turned down clients that I know other agencies would not turn down because I see them later working together. And that's not a statement about those other agencies and their choices, but it's also a statement about ours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, we have uh, refused to work with certain clients. We've also had junctures where a client goes a certain direction that is not something that we believe in, and we take the very difficult consequence of losing revenue uh, at that point. The other thing is we've also made some, I think, um, very difficult decisions about people along the ways because 
you cannot have purpose at your center without beginning at the start, which is your values. Mm. And so if you have values that really always go to do what's right, then if you have an executive who acts out of line, you do have to take action. And that can be alarming. Uh, it could be scary at night for us owners who pay the payroll. Um, but we make those decisions and we make them proudly, um, even if we have consequences. And I can tell you many times that we've had those consequences front and center. Sure. Well, it, it kind of leads on nicely. I wanted to ask in terms of, you know, organizations balancing, having a purpose, both with their short-term goals, but also their long-term business goals. What, what's your thoughts on, on that? I know that that uh, is a huge conversation now with so many brands because those brands are having their marketing people come in and say, these are the statistics that tell us that doing good will help our bottom line. But that's a hard road to a CEO who has not lived that reality for a long time. And so to be that uh, person who can help them see how transformation inside their company really, really will lead to business goods, solid business growth, new areas of business growth, new people who will be their consumers because they believe in that product um, over time is the way all the industry is heading. I want to ask your opinion. So, so, so this is linked, but it's a, it's a campaign that's received quite a lot of attention in the UK at the moment. Um, so it's from Lush, and this is their hashtag Spy Cops campaign. So I should say, just for any listeners who, who maybe aren't aware of the background to it, Lush have, have released a video. It's showing a, a woman sharing a kind of romantic meal with a guy at home. So he appears to be her boyfriend. Um, and then the video cuts, and it turns out the two of them, that, you know, then they move to a police interview room, and it turns out that he's actually uh, an undercover cop, and he's brought her in for questioning because she, she, she happens to be an activist. So And now Lush go on to tweet about the fact that undercover police officers have in, infiltrated the lives, homes, and beds of activists since 1968. Um, and they're saying that they're standing with um, you know all those campaigners who have a complete lack of confidence in the public inquiry uh, in the UK at the moment you know in terms of undercover policing um, and they're trying to put pressure on UK government to, to make that inquiry more effective now Lush have since gone on to tweet so I'm, I'm sort of quoting some of the stuff that, that they've tweeted here but they've gone on to tweet that this isn't an anti-state stroke anti-police um, campaign but I'm I'm keen to to find out from you, given this whole purpose, you know, discussion, how this sits with you know in, in, with you in terms of a brand, and and you know, so I've done my research on them. They're they're clearly openly, in fact, I think they have always been, you know, openly supporting of of activism as their purpose. But now taking on the British police force, you know, is that going a step too far, or is it where you would expect them to be? I would start by saying, whoever said that standing up for something is easy. And when you stand up for something, you're bound to not have 100% of the people join you. Yeah. And that's probably why you've made a statement. And I don't have a comment on whether they did or didn't do the right thing at the time, but I have a comment on Lush itself. Uh, first of all, I, I love the company. Uh, but second of all, I would say they're a poster child for standing up to stand out because they have always, since they started the company, the two of them, been fiercely independent and they have made choices that, again, you see have some consequences. And again, not to comment on their consequences, but to say that a brand should always stand up. And that would not make me afraid to go into the next CEO and say, hey, what do you stand for? And, you know, the, the thing to realize is that when you are an activist or when you stand up for something you are bound to make errors and all that matters is that you pick yourself back up and do it again the next day and you listen to people and if you're wrong you can as quickly say I was wrong 
and to the point you were just making, make that statement too of I'd like to go a different direction. And I think that that you know, signals a new era of CEOs who have to be courageous and say, yeah. I'm going to switch courses here because I'm going to take that input and I realize that wasn't the right thing. Um, and I actually think that that is freeing for so many CEOs today who kind of go by a script. Really? Why? Okay, let's um, let's change subject slightly, although although still related to, to brand purpose. Um, you're here talking about your Brands in Motion study that you recently uh, released. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, thank you for bringing up Brands in Motion, which That's is okay. a great study. You know, it, it's not hard to see that the world is in turmoil. Everything is moving around us, right? And sometimes we can't stop to catch our breath. And so just the name itself is not necessarily the most provocative thing. Brands are in motion, yes, obviously. But what does that mean? You know, and we can see the swirl in the media ecosystem. We can see new influentials popping up all the time. We can see the creative... Um, you, you know, tools that we have today are far more sophisticated, so we can virtually communicate anyway, anyhow, to anybody we, we want, right? And so Brands in Motion, the study, basically acknowledges that fact and then proves to people that you need to acknowledge nothing is, is static around you, and you need to figure out how to move then the right way in that environment of motion. And we all know that it's more difficult to move steadily and with you know the right purpose at your heart and in a way that your customers can count on and not be, not be swayed by all of the winds and turmoil around you. Uh, and so Brands in Motion has been really fun because not only did it acknowledge that brands are in motion, but it's starting to come to a good set of insights where we can use to counsel our clients, all right, this is what you should do. This is what you should do as a result of the environment in which you do your work. And so we came up with some realities. Uh, that was our first stage in terms of let's start categorizing where brands stand and n not bad or good, but let's take a look at what today are the attributes of where you stand and your motion and then let's see if that's the way you want to move and if not what can we do about that have you seen any campaigns here at can that fit with what you've discovered in the, in the study? I've not had the chance to go around as much as I would like to, but I can tell you right now, after talking to someone uh, who was on the jury, and um, since the awards were last night, she's the only one that I can ac actually acknowledge, because of course you're not supposed to talk about those <laughs> in advance. But one thing she said struck me. She said, the emotional quotient of the awards that she judged left her exhausted where the jurors would like to go out and sit on the beach. So let's think about that for a minute in terms of the great campaigns, campaigns where people are pivoting their innovation to really help society and, and match the world's thorniest problems. So I can't wait to get in there and look at all of them and see what's going on. And that's, in fact, what I'm going to do right after this time with Excellent. you. Excellent. Okay, and here's your chance to plug. Where, if, if listeners want to find out more about the Brands in Motion study, where do they need to go? I'm assuming it's on the website. Well, thank you for asking. Of course, it's on the website, and uh, we're very excited about that. We've had so many inquiries about it, and of course, we use it with our current clients, and then a lot of people, um, you know, that we draw together in different cities across the world and talk through, you yeah. know, how does this affect you? And we have a re really good ongoing discussion about it. Brands in Motion um, first phase came out last year. The next phase is due to be out in September, and uh, you should stay tuned for that. And the URL is. W-E-Worldwide.com
Excellent. Uh, now, I just want to finish off. I, I read your blog post following your recent uh, keynote at the Indie Summit in London where you shared five lessons that uh, having a purpose has, has taught you. Um, so I just wondered if, you know, as I said, just finish off this interview, whether you could share those again quickly for our listeners. Thank you for asking that. It's funny because actually there's probably 105 lessons I've learned along the way in terms of, you know, how to really build a business and, and how to really um, make one that's going to be a purpose that sticks. Um, first and foremost, though, I wanted to start with lesson one, which is always, always celebrate disruption. Don't fear it, but celebrate it, embrace it, and see what you can do with it, and make your own disruption. Uh, the second lesson, number two, is always put people first, uh, always. And people will follow you if you tell them what's in it for them. People will follow you if they know that there's a clarity and an energy around purpose. And that's where we should always start our businesses. Lesson number three, build the epic, uh, not the episode. We worry a lot. We spoke early about consequences. Of course, we have consequences. But we should always think about the long game, the why. And we should always say that's what we're really building is the epic, not just the individual thing that happens to us on a daily basis. Number four, we talked a little bit about um, stability. Number four is find stability in brands in motion, us, our own motion. Find stability in that motion and realize that once you have a firm ground on which you're standing, then others will follow you. And five, uh, which is something that can be controversial, but certainly is very evident here in uh, Can co-create, lesson five, co-create, because we can't do it all ourselves. In fact, I'm amazed at people who think that they can be good at everything. Uh, really what we need to do, and which is why we're we, and our company is called we, is we need to reach out to like-minded partners who can help us achieve our clients' goals. And so whether it's you know partnerships with our clients, whether it is partnerships with like agencies, or um, even competitive agencies, I can cite you many times, always think about co-creation, because that is how you deliver what a client truly, truly wants. Tremendous. Uh, Melissa Wagner-Zorkin, thank you for joining the show. Thank you. It's been great, and I admire your work, and I'm really looking forward to getting out and seeing the rest of the entries here at Cannes. That's Appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to the C-Suite Podcast. To listen to all previous shows in the series, you can either visit csuitepodcast.com, follow us on SoundCloud, or subscribe to the show in iTunes by searching for the C-Suite Podcast in the iTunes Store. Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do. So I'm now joined by Dabashi Pandit, Head of Multicultural Business at Sky, um, who is here at Cannes uh, to present a session about what he believes is a, uh, a unique and overlooked audience when it comes to advertising, and that's the millions of global immigrants who consume media from their country of origin in their now country of uh, residence. Dabashi, um, what kind of numbers are we talking about? We're talking of huge numbers here, um, but the, the most interesting part is um, marketers in the globally um, and also probably in the UK which is where uh, I come from uh, given Sky's uh, background in this I uh, have never paid heed to this um, and, and the interesting part is this 240 million global immigrants who live outside their country of origin now uh, for all the maths men out there uh, it, the global immigrants contribute 10% of the global GDP uh, we're talking of huge numbers um, and, and it's an overlooked audience uh, in terms of media targeting or, or, 
or um, brands advertising to these uh, to these groups, specialist groups. And, and and I know yourself, you weren't born in the UK yourself, were you? I wasn't. So no, I was born in India. I was born in a city called Calcutta, uh, which is called Kolkata now, city of joy. Uh, and yeah, I've moved to the UK about uh, 18 years back. So for me, uh, as a person of my background, uh, I'm not watching everything that is on mainstream television, whether it's ITV, Channel 4 or whatever, Sky Atlantic, of course. But then I'm also watching a lot of content that originates from India, the Bollywood films, for example, some of the, the Indian news channels. So I lead what you define as the dual media lifestyle. So I'm watching the best of mainstream content. Yes, I'm watching Game of Thrones, uh, which is fascinating, uh, great. Uh, and I'm also watching the stuff uh, which is X Factor India, uh, which is um, on one of the ethnic channels. So this is how you define as, uh, as, as, as a dual media behavior. And probably that's one of the reasons why you've got globally formatted shows being so successful. So what used to be Pop Idol or uh, which became American Idol and, and you know Indian Idol, Nigerian Idol. So people talk about all these kind of things. Yeah. So it's it's a very fascinating business. Do you, do you think your clients are, are aware enough and taking advantage of the opportunities that, that this brings? Uh, honestly, no, yeah. uh, because they don't think about it. And um, I think the biggest challenge is um, everybody says that they are global, uh, whether it's agencies or client side. But I don't think they, they exchange the best of global learnings or practices or even apply a layer of thinking as to how a successful campaign can be run uh, for a particular audience in the uh, overseas markets. Because, like I said, everybody's so myopic in their view that you know, the horizontality of, of, of the business is, is kind of missing yeah. uh, amongst marketeers. And I know we've already talked um, earlier about a, a, a brand that has taken advantage of this. I, I was yeah. wondering if you can share that, that with us because British Airways obviously was what, what we were chatting about. But yeah, you, you, tell us, you can tell us about no, the campaign. No, I, I, I think the British Airways uh, case study is, is fascinating. Um, yeah. and, um, it all originated from British Airways going to the agency and saying, Ogilvy and Mather in this particular case, and saying, we need to grow the transatlantic um, sector. Now, transatlantic sector to anybody is just uh, London, New York, or uh, if you're a bit more creative, uh, London, LA. Uh, they don't think of anything beyond that, right? And uh, that, as a, as a category or as a sector, the transatlantic sector was growing at a mega 0.3%. Uh, where British Airways wanted to grow its uh, its share, but you can't grow in a category where the category itself is not growing. You know, makes sense. Uh, so, uh, the Ogilvy uh, analyzed the data, and what they did was they put a different thinking hat uh, into this, and uh, it was a very interesting thing. So they realized that we should actually try and explore or be a bit more uh, indulge in a bit of out of the box thinking and look at what are the other sectors. So for example, they decided to target Indian expatriates and students who live outside of India, but commute to the US on a regular basis. And which is fascinating because it's, all, it's still growing the transatlantic sector because yeah, yeah. if the flight originates from Mumbai, there has to be a stopover at Heathrow, whether you like it or not. And then from Heathrow, it's, it's another flight, right? So it's growing the transatlantic sector. So 
it, it was a fascinating case study. Uh, it's called Visit Mum. Uh, it's on YouTube. Uh, the, the whole uh, the whole series. And uh, British Airways uh, grew by its market share by over 50%. And they generated 22 million pounds of incremental sales growth by just reaching out to this Indian yeah. uh, expatriate audience. Yeah, it's a brilliant case study. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, sh we'll, we'll embed the video on the, uh, on the show notes as, as well. But yeah, it's Visit Mum was the campaign. So yeah, just search for that and, you, and you'll see. I, I actually love... Well, I don't want to give too many spoilers away about the yeah. end, but, it, but the reaction at the end of the mum is, is fantastic. It's fantastic. So, the, like I say, the forewarning is please watch it with a box of Kleenex tissues next to you, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, it's powerful, that Excellent. campaign. Um, part of your role at, at Sky, as we were saying, is, is kind of, I suppose, educating marketers, you know, about reaching these niche audiences. But you, you've got that particular technology of yours, which is the Sky Ad smart platforms. Can, can you tell us a little bit about how that works? Yeah, so we've got uh, Sky, we've got uh, our addressable TV offering, which is called Sky Ad Smart. So uh, there are three um, elements to, to my job and the way we can help uh, marketers reach out to this audience. So Sky Ad Smart is, like I said, our addressable TV, wherein you can uh, send targeted messages uh, according to 1200 different attributes that we have at our end and uh, this is all uh, been um, agreed by people who have it evinced interest in, in targeting in, in receiving targeting communications uh, and and we can literally target people based on their cultural viewing so for example we would know uh, people who are viewing a lot of South Asian content, for example, uh, versus homes that do not have that kind of uh, viewing behavior. So the Skybox acts as the server, so the ad goes and sits in um, the Skybox. And when there is a typical ad break, instead of the normal ad, uh, we serve them with a culturally relevant ad. So we've done examples for um, a lot of supermarket brands, uh, for example, Asda uh, ran a special Ramadan campaign for us, where we said, hey, for stock up uh, for your Ramadan essentials uh, to those South Asian homes, whilst the non-South Asian homes got a Heineken ad, for example. <laughs> yeah, right. So yeah. uh, it, it's it's very simple, straightforward process. So that is one element. And the beauty about that is we are just reaching uh, these messages through the mainstream channels. Yeah. So I, when I'm watching any of the Sky's wholly owned channels or Fox or Nacho, mainstream channels, I can get that ad. So it, it, it's beautiful in the way that I'm South Asian, but when I'm watching mainstream content, I'm getting served with a South Asian, yeah. culturally relevant content on a mainstream channel, which makes everybody, you know, wow. It's, what's going on. it's interesting you use that example because, like, you take the lead up to Christmas, yeah. and every advert suddenly becomes Christmas related. You know, you that, can't, you can, but but other there are other festivals, you know, in other cultures, obviously throughout the year. And like you say, so suddenly that you're now being relevant to that particular audience. Absolutely, you hit the nail on the spot because uh, one of the things that I always mention, so we have a consultancy approach when we go and speak to clients. I tell them, my job here is to help you celebrate Christmas all year round. Yeah. And there's a puzzled look, what do you mean by that? I'm like, listen, Christmas doesn't have to be make or break for you. You know, after Christmas, you've got Chinese New Year, you've got Jewish Passover, you've got Ramadan Lead to Eid, you've got Ganesh Chaturthi, you've got Durga Puja, Dasera, Diwali, which is very similar to the time of Christmas. But then you can reach audiences with these targeted messages. Yeah. And the other thing that we have is our 
um, our South Asian channels uh, bouquet or uh, even the Black Caribbean African channels. So we've got about 29 uh, to 30 channels uh, which are catering to specific ethnic groups. So we can have ads run on those channels uh, without fear of alienating anybody um, because that's meant specifically for that audience. And the third interesting bit is how we can look at mainstream channels but with uh, content that might appeal to a particular group. So for example, in the history of Sky Sports, 25-year-old history, I broke the norm a bit because um, I ran Hindi campaigns on Sky Sports uh, during Indian Premier League cricket right. because 41% of the viewership of IPL on Sky Sports linear was coming from an Indian background according to our reports. So we had uh, advertisers in India who, was, who were excited with that and uh, they gave us ads and it was in Hindi or English as I say and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, th th there are some uh, press articles about that and how it has been positively received. Brilliant. Well that's fantastic. Listen, we, um, again I'm sure we could be talking for ages on, yeah. on this but um, really fascinating stuff. Um, for now, Dabashi, uh, thank you so much for uh, joining the show. Thank you for having me over. Enjoy the sun and the beach. Absolutely. And it's weird uh, talking about Christmas and, uh, <laughs> and, I know. and things like that in the sunshine. Here, it seems so. I'm in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. That's brilliant. Uh, well, listen, that actually wraps up this episode uh, from uh, Canline. So just a quick thank you again to ICO for hosting us in their house of PR. Um, don't forget, you can listen to all previous shows of the series on the website at csweetpodcast.com. Uh, you can also subscribe to the feed on the likes of iTunes, SoundCloud, Acast, loads of other podcast platforms. Um, just search for the C-Suite Podcast. And please, if you do, um, just give us a quick positive rating and review because that helps us climb the business charts also if you want to get involved in the show in any way you can contact us using the uh, contact form on the website um, or if you want to reach me uh, you can do so on twitter using at russ goldsmith but for now thanks for listening and goodbye <laughs>